0: This week, we're going to talk about a different aspect of unity. And as most of you know, coming up with titles is not my thing, but if I was going to come up with a title for this one, I would title it, in honor of Din Jardin, This is the Way. Was Lee sleeping over there? Because that was practically for him. I said the title was, This is the Way. Okay. I expected an uproarous laughter from that corner with Sarah and Lee sitting together. It's a stinking Star Wars reference, guys. <clears throat> anyway, the subtitle of the title, This is the Way, would be Unity in the Faith, okay? But guys, that's not just a funny joke. This is insight that, that I feel is relevant. Like For any of you guys who know The Mandalorian, the TV show The Mandalorian based in Star Wars, the Mandalorians live by a strict faith. It has strict doctrines, and they call it, they say, this is the way. That's like they're, they're like greeting and they're leaving, or when they, someone gives them something to say, they're like, yes, this is the way. In other words, they're submitting to the way. It's really cool. <clears throat> Because I'm going to get into like what Scripture has to say about the way. A little teaser for those of you who read your Bible. <clears throat> the rest of you, you're just going to have to wait till I reveal it. Zing! So listen, again, just a recap on unity. Why? Why is unity important? Because in John 17, Jesus expresses what he wants. He created the church and he says, we want them. I pray that they will be united in the same way that you and I are united, Father. That statement alone is enough to send all your, your circuitry just to, to death, like short-circuiting, that that would even be possible. Do you think Jesus would pray for something that he knew was not possible? Of course not. He was praying for something he felt was absolutely possible and reasonable. And then if his disciples were there hearing him pray, they'd probably be like, Jesus, how is this even possible? And he'd say, well, with you guys, it's not possible. But with me, everything is possible. And I'm praying that you guys will be united with me in the same way I'm united with the Father and that you will be united with us in this place. And this unity is something, again, like I stressed, we do not create. It's not ours to create. We are invited into it. The scripture says that in one spirit, we were baptized into this one body. Right? This is the idea. We're baptized into it. It's why when baptism, we stress so much that physical baptism is so much more than just some sort of outward traditional thing you do to show that you're a Christian. It is a symbolic and heavily expressive rite of passage equivalent to an adoption ceremony today. That's what you would relate it to. Can you get adopted without a ceremony, without the legal transaction? Technically, sure. But here for it to become official and legal and right you go through the adoption process you sign papers lawyers look at it and then you celebrate <clears throat> and that is the that is the essence of what baptism is intended to be you understand this public confession that you have shifted your loyalties to the father This one father who is the one father over this one family that makes up one body with one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one spirit. That is what it is. It's a huge step. It's why families will disown people from other religions, not yet until they're baptized. In Muslim families, if a son or a daughter comes to their parents and says, I think I believe in this, they will just try to teach that out of them. They'll try to convince them that they're wrong. But the minute they find out they get baptized, the only option left for them is to disown them. And they recognize it. They recognize the significance of that. They recognize the choice to be united with something totally other than what they are united in. And they recognize there is nothing left. And Jesus, Jesus said this, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. That would divide fathers against sons and mothers against daughters. And like, this is his own words. This is the way. So, anyway, because of this emphasis on unity, right? And what Jesus says this, he says this, why do I want them to be united? So that the world will know that I am who the Father says I am. Right? It's so the world will know that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, Yahweh in the flesh. That's the emphasis. So, because of this, we must make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Right? This unity of the spirit, which we talked about last week, that and a peace that binds us together. It goes so far beyond just the, the element of peace that says, you know, calm and lack of conflict, but to a tranquil peace that comes from the assurance of salvation through Christ. Yeah. Right? It covers this whole spectrum, this one word for peace, this whole spectrum. <clears throat> and in these contexts of Christian peace, the type of Christian peace that actually binds people together, it's emphatic. And this is what we're called to, right? So Ephesians 4, I'm going to read again, just like I've done every week, because this is the core passage, and it's important we understand the emphasis of Paul here. It says, we should operate with one another according to love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. Because there is only one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to only one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And it goes on to say that now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. And then it says, and this Messiah personally gave some, these gifts to the church, to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the purpose of training up the saints in the work of, of service in the kingdom to build up the body of Christ until you understand this is the goal. These gifts will remain active and Holy Spirit empowered within the churches until the goal, the mission is accomplished. What is that mission? Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son. The knowledge there, the Greek word epinosis, right? Not just gnosis, not just intellectual stuff, but knowledge gained through experience, gained through encounter, gained through life sharing. That's epinosis. That's the knowledge here of Christ that we need to be brought to. So it's not just, everyone read your Bible until you know it really well. Nice. We're We're all united in the knowledge of the Son of God now. That's not the point. It's saying until we are united in the faith, and in the experiential, conviction-grounded knowledge of Christ. And the fruit of that is what we talked about last week in Galatians 5.22. You see the fruit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. And this fruit, when you do the word studies, when you look at what each word means, demonstrates that the only way a person could live demonstrating this fruit is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it creates this Really, really simple picture of what it means to be in Christ. It means you're united under this one Spirit who possesses you, who empowers you, produce the fruit. Of the Spirit, that is then what reveals to the world that Jesus is the Son of God and is the Messiah and is the one hope that all his followers are united under. And the invitation goes out to the lost who don't have that to come and enter into this supernatural peace that binds us together and says, I am now part of this supernatural family with one Lord, one God, one Spirit, one baptism, one hope, who is the Father of all of us. And last week I talked about the type of unity that brought Jew and Gentile together. This great mystery. But this is powerful, right? Because when it goes down into verse 14, just skip down to 14, because look, the goal of these gifts to the church is to produce unity in the faith and unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. How do we know he's talking about something that we need to learn experientially because if you look at what he says it protects us from it gives us greater insight (laughs) that we would grow into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness that's a huge statement in other words he's saying hey the standard of success here is measured by the fullness of Christ meaning anything short of the fullness of Christ is not success yet And you think it's a high standard not to listen to just gross, sexually explicit music. (laughs) That standard's a little legalistic, Steve. Okay, well, I'm just saying, however you understand it, the standard is the fullness of Christ. And whatever you think he would indulge in for his enjoyment and entertainment, that's standard. And that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I'm just saying, the standard is higher than you think. You understand? For every area, the standard is higher than we think if we think it's anything short of the fullness of the stature of Christ. And he goes on to say this. Then, if we are brought to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, then we will no longer be little children. We're being called little children here, guys. We will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching. You understand? How could, how could some human or demonic teaching disrupt us if we're so united in the Spirit? <clears throat> it shouldn't be able to, but he seems to think that until we're united in the faith, meaning one heart, one mind... That we could be blown away, blown around by every different wind of teaching. So somehow be unite, being united in one faith protects us from being blown around by these winds of teachings. goes on to say, or by human cunning with cleverness in the very techniques of deceit. But instead, if we are united in one faith, we will be able to speak the truth in love which will then let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Did you see that? It's been there the whole time, <laughs> right? This just simple expression, like this is it. <clears throat> if the church was united in one faith, we, wouldn't ever, we would have never run into the epidemic of the prosperity message or the hyperfaith gospel or the hyper-grace gospel or any of these other massive distortions because the church would have been united and it would have spoke the truth in love to those who were getting off track and brought them back together in the unity of the faith. To me, that was really powerful. Here's another thing that, that Paul says to a church, the church of Corinth. He says this in 2 Corinthians 13, Test yourselves. To see if you are in the faith. Wait, what? There's a test? Is this like the personality test or the dot test? I can just take a test and see if I'm a Christian? Yes. <laughs> well, yes, there is. <clears throat> this is what Paul says. <clears throat> This statement that he says, right, comes after a severe warning. It's the end of his second letter to the Corinthian church, which is a church that's been in upheaval and lots of conflict. Sexual promiscuity, legalism, the gifts gone wild, right? (coughs) Sin. (laughs) Sin that has become so grotesque, Paul says not even heathens think about these things. Yet you guys are doing it and not only doing it, celebrating it. And so he comes with severe warnings and harshness and he's saying, guys, you think like I want to come again for the third time, but I don't want to come and have you think I'm weak like you guys keep saying. So when I come, I'm going to come in power. He says, I gave warning and I give warning as when I was present the second time. So now while I am absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest, if I come again, I will not be lenient. Since you seek proof of Christ speaking to me, they're questioning his leadership. They're probably responding to his rebukes with defensiveness and saying, Who are you to tell us? Why do you? And he's saying, You want proof that Christ is speaking to me? I'm going to bring it. <clears throat> he says, He, God, is not weak toward you, but powerful among you. In fact, He was crucified in weakness, but He lives by God's power. In other words, he's not in that weak state anymore. He's alive and living through the very power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet towards you we will live with him by God's power. Do you see what Paul's equating? He's saying, yeah, Jesus was viewed as weak one time, but no longer. He now operates in the very power of God. And you thought we were weak at first, but when we come, we're going to be operating in the midst of you in the very same power. This is not a, we love you so much, can't wait to get there and give you a hug. This is a, you are in outright sin, the devil is waiting to destroy you, and we are going to come with the power you're looking for to show you that Christ is speaking through us. In that context, he then says this. His very next sentence is this. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. In the context of this warning, he's saying, test yourselves, guys. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith we are preaching. Examine yourselves. <clears throat> and then he says this. Paul sarc- if you don't appreciate sarcasm, you probably don't like Paul. Right? Because <laughs> he is brutally sarcastic sometimes. <clears throat> but he says this. Or do you not recognize for yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. That's what he says. This is, how, this is like a statement I feel like would be really powerful to the kind of hyper-spiritual crowd in the church, especially in the charismatic wing of things, right? Where, yeah, I'm with Christ because when I pray, I get goosebumps. <clears throat> so I know he loves me. He wants my happiness. I left my husband and I married my soulmate because I really felt like God was telling me that this is what he made me for and I had made a mistake and he was correcting it now. Sounds outlandish. I've had two separate people in a five-year period say that exact statement to me. So he says this, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize for yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. And he says, and I hope you will recognize that we have not failed the test. In other words, he's saying, I hope you recognize that Christ is in us. We have come in the chapter 12 at the end. He says, we came with all the evidence and demonstrations of apostleship. All of them manifested among you in abundance. We did signs, wonders, miracles, healing, preaching, everything that affirms our apostleship from Christ to you. And so here he's saying, so I hope you recognize we have not failed that test. Right before that, he's saying, listen, examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Or don't you, can you not even recognize whether you have Christ in you? Because if you're not sure, here's the test. If you fail it, he's not. <clears throat> what is this test? The test is literally saying, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And so the key is to understand how Paul understands that statement. The faith. Paul understands the faith. As the way of Christ and his apostles and the teachings that came from Christ and his apostles. He refers to them as the commands, the traditions, uh, the household texts, the instructions, right? These are what Paul refers to. He packages them all together and then he refers to that as his gospel, and in Ephesians 3, we see that God, he tells us that God's twofold job description to Paul, this is what God has called me to do, to reveal the extravagant riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and also the administration of the mystery of God, which was the church, to the churches, right? Okay. In other words, setting it in order, giving it its identity from the revelation he received from God, the teachings, the instructions, the traditions, the didache, this is the faith, meaning how you are to live, or simply put, according to Scripture, the way. How are you to follow Christ? This way, according to the way. And this is throughout all of Scripture, guys. When you look in Acts, there's like six or seven different times Scripture, and this being a Christian as we know it, is called... The Way. In its very earliest form, before it had any title, it was just known as The Way. People of The Way is how it was referred to. In, nine, in chapter 9, verse 2, it says this, or in verse 1, Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, either man or women, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. See that? They understood this thing as the way. That's how they referred to it. The way. They were living a different way. That's what set them apart. That's what made them enemies. They were boldly preaching it. They were boldly discussing it. This way. In Acts nineteen nine, jump up. I'm just gonna read through it. I was hesitating, should I just read them all? But you gotta I want you to hear the emphasis on these verses. In nineteen nine. It says then he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of 3 months engaging in discussion and trying to persuade them about the things related to the kingdom of God. That was verse 8. But when some became hardened and would not believe slandering the way <clears throat> I want you to I want you to get this why is that so important this is why little insight. In Antioch this was called the way But in Antioch, they started to be referred to as Christians for the very first time. The followers of the way were then synonymously named followers of Christ. That's what Christian means, Christ follower. And it was said in a derogatory context. They were being made fun of when they were being referred as Christians. But listen to the association by godless critics of Christianity. They said the way, the followers of the way, are synonymous with Christ followers. They linked those two things together. <clears throat> the way they lived and the message they preached and the, the gospel they embodied was then so, linked, so closely linked to following Christ that they were referred to as Christians. <clears throat> that happens way earlier than Acts 19. That's early on. In Paul, that's before Paul's first missionary journey. So in Acts 19, we're looking at somewhere around his second journey, I believe. Okay, the middle of his second journey. <clears throat> you can fact mix, check me on that. I'm just going off the top of my head. Either way, later on, this is what he says. Might be at the end of his second journey, beginning of his third journey. He says this. Paul and Luke, writing this, refers to it as the way. They already know Luke is the one who wrote in chapter 11 that they're referred to as Christians. But in chapter 19, Luke continues to write and still refer to it as the way. It was Luke's preferred definition of what it meant to be part of this movement. In 1923, when you, you go down a little bit more. During this time, there was a major disturbance about the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business. So the way was being blamed for the lack of business in the idol-making shops. You understand? People were burning their, their idolatrous books and statues. No one was buying any more idols because of the influence of the way. In other words, these people heard the gospel and they changed the way they were living. And the way they lived looked identical to the other people who were part of the way. That was what it meant to become part of the way. They were united under one faith. In 22.4, there's only two more after this. He said, I persecuted this way to the death. In chapter 22, at the very end of Paul's life, he's still referring to it as the way. Paul, the apostle, the one who wrote scripture, right? the New Testament, we're all quoting right now and reading listening to. At the end of his life, he is still referring to it as the way. In 24.14, as we get even later into the story, Luke says this, quoting Paul, but I confess this to you, that according to the way, which the, the opponents call a sect, so I worship my father's God, believing all the things that are written in the law and the prophets. And I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept. He's saying, look, they call this a sect. I call it the way. That was a really big controversial statement in the midst of his Jewish critics. And in 2422, Since Felix was accurately informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Now, this was Paul's goal, to accurately describe and define the way to Felix. And as he did this to different leaders, they would literally say, Whoa, whoa, are you trying to persuade me to join the way? Right? He's like, We need to stop. This was Paul's emphasis on the way. You see, the way was, was the authoritative definition of what it meant to be a Christ follower. So these people would come and they'd say, what is the way? And these people would then show them the way. The way to what? The way to follow Christ. In this other part of the Scripture, in the Gospels, Jesus says this about himself. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man can come to the Father except that they come through this way. Now... In a simplistic understanding, as, as I was raised under, and, and I think it's common because it's easy. You just say, you got to follow the way of Christ, and we never think to think what that means. He is the way. What does that mean? We just think, oh, you can't get saved unless you go through Christ. What does it mean to go through Christ? To believe that he is Jesus, and that he did, he did things for me that saved me. All that's true. That is so true. Right? <clears throat> but there's a reason why he leaves you here. Do you understand? There's a reason why Jesus came to earth and lived here for 33 human years. There's a reason why after he entered ministry, he lived and walked and taught and exemplified something for three years. There's a reason why he called disciples and reproduced himself and gave them the commission to carry on the same mission and work, or should I say, the same way. It's because the way, Him being the way, is so much more than the entry point into this new kingdom and new life. He is not just the entry point. He is the journey and He is the conclusion. And you have to be in Him the whole time. That's why the Scriptures emphasize those who endure till the end will be saved. Why Jesus emphasized that if you do not confess me here, I will not confess you then. Is he saying like, hey, this is a deal. You rub my back, I'll rub yours. If you confess me here, I'll confess you there. No, he's saying, if your life doesn't confess me, then when you get here, I'm not going to pretend like it did. It's not going to be a, whatever, yes, love wins. I want you all in here. No, love does win. The love of the cross is what wins. And it wins hearts and souls to join the way. And that needs unity in the faith. This one faith that Paul passed down. The faith where Paul says to the Galatian church and others, if you believe any other faith, I don't care if it comes from angels, you are devoid of this gospel. Do you understand? There's only one. So what do we do with all these different faiths? And here's the thing the faith goes so far beyond just believing Christ and Him crucified. That is the entrance point. Now, the question is how then should we live? Well, let me show you the way. That is what Paul does throughout the whole New Testament. He is showing us. The way. That's why he makes such serious statements about all these fruits and tests you can do that tell you whether you are in or out of the kingdom. He gives detailed lists and saying, if you find these things in your life, that these things are, are allowed to remain in your life, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that statement should scare a lot more of us than it does. Jesus himself said this, and you can wrestle as to what you think he means by it. The way to hell is broad, and many, many people find it. But the way to life is narrow, and few people find it. This is just truth, guys, it's truth. This is what's on the line. And why is this such a big deal? It's not because Jesus doesn't want to save everybody. He wants to save everybody. That's his desire. He says that it's his desire that all men would come to the Father. And so he created, he came to earth and preached a message and then was the actual manifestation of it. I wrote this down in my notes. I said Christ is the word made flesh. He is the faith that has been passed down to us in the flesh. He's the gospel manifested. He's called the church to continue the mission of manifesting the gospel. We must be united in the way to do that. Do you understand? The gospel is the message and the church is the manifestation of it. And for that manifestation to be the powerful force it's intended to be, we have to be united. We have to be united in the principles that Christ taught. We have to be united in the way of Christ and his apostles. The things the apostles taught were the things they saw and heard from Christ that they knew and understood needed to be duplicated, reproduced. And this was passed down faithfully in the church for about 400 years. I want you to get that. This one faith was passed down for 400 years. They had church councils that lasted years and years. All-out brawls and fights happened in these councils. I think in one of these times I told you about how Santa Claus punched Arius in the face, right? Remember I told you that? That happened in one of the councils because they were so fervent to protect the faith and the accuracy of how it had been passed down from Christ and the apostles. And for 400 years, the entire world understood that there was only one church. One church. And it was under the leadership of Christ. And they believed that that leadership had been passed down to the apostles. And the apostles had passed that down to the people they discipled. And those people passed it down to the people they were discipled. And if you look in church history, of course, it gets corrupted and you end up with a pope. Right? (coughs) But their intention was good. The intention was to keep this large, super-fast, growing thing united under, under a single leadership. But it went wrong. That leadership started to involve political leadership and governmental leadership and military leadership. And it took human understandings of leadership and brought it into the church. And then we get corruption for the next 8 to 1,500 years. <clears throat> The Protestant Reformation was ultimately a response to that, to try to take the leadership of the church from the Pope and give it back to the word, the faith. And so the major movement of the Protestant Reformation was to make the the center part of their services the reading of the word again, instead of it being the rites and passages of Eucharist and things like that. They still did all that, but their emphasis was to bring it back to the word. That's why Luther posted his 95 theses on the wall. It was his 95 points of where the church had strayed from the faith. But before that, when the church was still faithfully passing down the teachings of Christ and his apostles to generation to generation, it stayed united in one faith under one church for 400 years. And it expanded throughout the entire Roman Empire and became the, the first, an approved religion within the Roman Empire, which is a big deal to go from persecution to approved, and then it became the official state religion of the Roman Empire. <clears throat> Do you understand? That's the history of the church. And we need to return to those grassroots Christ and his apostles, and find out what were the teachings that we unite under, and focus on uniting under those truths. And those truths are more detailed than we think. There are higher requirements in the gospel as to how you live your daily life than you think, than you know about. Did you know the scripture not only requires it's an actual command for husbands to lay your life down for your wife in the same way Christ did it for the church? Did you know it's an actual command to be gentle, to be compassionate, to be hospitable, to be kind, long-suffering, patient? Do you know it's an actual command to not only look out for your own interests, but to also look out for the interests of others? It's an actual command for you to look to cover the sins of another brother. Not hide it like, oh, they did something wrong, we want to sweep this under the rug. It's talking about coming over as a covering when you're weak and clearly injured by sin. That you come and you become a covering of of recovery, of healing, of protection, of encouragement, of rebuke, of instruction. The scripture says that someone who leads someone like back to the Lord has saved a soul. I'm saying there's clear instructions. And when you look into the New Testament, you understand the writing styles. There was a writing style called the household texts. That wasn't just Paul made that writing style up. It was a Greek writing style of the day. And it meant you used that style when you were instructing teachings, authoritative teachings and instructions on how to operate. And he gave these household texts to the church. Open up Romans 12 and read that. Start in verse 9, and you'll see an entire list of what is part of a household text where Paul is telling you how to live. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's a command. You don't have that option. Show family-level affection one to another in brotherly love, outdoing one another with honor. That is a key part of the way. Do you find yourself trying to outdo one another in honor? Trying to honor people? What happens when people gossip about you or say mean things about you or hurt your feelings? Do you know there's a teaching directly from Christ that commands you to pray for them, to do good to them, to bless them? That's the way. When someone tries to force you to do something against your will, Christ teaches you to go beyond what they're forcing you to do. Go a whole extra mile with them. When someone tries to rob you of something you value, he says to them, Give them something else of value that they could need. These are teachings of the way. Christ teaches it very clearly. When someone harms you on purpose, does wrong to you. He tells us your response should be to turn the other cheek. That if we don't live according to these teachings, we're not united in the faith. And we are not representing Christ. Instead, we are representing ourselves in the flesh and the enemy's doctrines and the enemy's philosophies and the enemy's responses. And we're living from the flesh instead of the spirit. And if you're not living according to the spirit, then scripture tells you, you don't have Christ in you. This does not mean perfection, but this is part of the value of being united in the faith, is that as a church body that's united in the faith, when we see a brother or sister straying, operating in the flesh, and we know they don't want to be doing that, we step in as family members, as brothers and sisters, looking to to do them with honor and to cover them and say, hey, listen, I saw that outburst. I heard it. What was going on, man? That is not what Christ has called us to do. It's just not. I'm sure you have many reasons, but there is no excuse. That type of response can only happen if we're already in a culture of showing family level love and affection to one another, outdoing one another in honor, allowing love to not be with hypocrisy. Do you understand? The, The coming into the faith drastically changes what you believe and how you live, but there's far less flexibility than we think. I want to make sure that's clear. That's what I want to get through in this call to unity in the faith is that there is a lot more clear instruction on how you are to behave and to live in the Scriptures than you think. Exactly. It is not legalism either, guys. Legalism is when you do something and you don't understand the heart as to why you do it. You do it because it says to. But if you are united in the spirit, bound together with brothers and sisters in the peace of the Holy Spirit, and you're united in the faith, meaning we're all striving to live according to the same way Christ and his apostles did, we're all striving to exemplify the same witness to the world, we're all using our gifts and our abilities and our strengths to fuel the mission at all costs, then when someone strays, it sticks out like a sore thumb, right, when people are starting to be a little bit secretive. A little bit more drawn away, a little bit more hidden. It's like, to the whole body because we're united and we begin to feel the disunity. We begin to feel the secrecy that's coming up, the the hiddenness, right? Let me tell you where you see this most often in my 25 years of ministry experience. Young people in relationships. If the relationship is walking in purity, you can almost always tell because they're just happy to be together in public. They're, 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 there's an openness, there's an expression, there's no hiddenness. But man, when couples start to like withdraw, be a little bit hidden, be a little bit less open in their conversations, get real sensitive if you ask them a question or two about it, that's like warning signs like, guys, there's something off. And maybe it's not physical, but in their heart, there's something that they feel disjointed or that there's a hiddenness that's being required and that happens in adults too obviously all over the place what happens when there's disunity but you don't have the guts to share it to talk about it to confess it to communicate to say hey listen I've had a fence for a long time but I can't take it anymore I need to be united And feel this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that's meant to bind us together, but I don't feel this peace. I have a hard time even making eye contact with you when I walk by you. I need to communicate. We need to hash this out as brothers and sisters who are going to have to spend eternity together. That's what unity in the faith looks like. This word faith is a big word. It's a big word. It's as big as this, the way. And if you're not living according to the way then you're not in the way, right? You're not part of the way. You're outside of the way. And you don't want to be there. Now, I know this objection is coming up. Well, do we have to all be clones? No, you, you should not be a clone. You should be the unique expression of Christ on the earth. Sarah, do you have this picture? Ready? Put it up for all you football fans. nice. This is a football game for some of you who don't recognize that. See all the guys in the blue shirt? Everyone see the guys? Is this on the other room screen? Yes? Okay. All the guys in the blue shirt are on the same team. They have one mission. One mission to get into that end zone, the end of the field down there. They have to get the ball into the end zone. That's their mission. How they accomplish this mission varies drastically in the sense of how they execute the attempt to get the ball down there. Every one of these guys, there's 11 people on this field right here. There's a receiver off the picture out there, but you can tell by the defender up there. He's covering them out there, okay? There's 11 guys on this field. They have a head coach on the sideline who sees the whole field in a way the players don't. He calls in the play over a microphone to the quarterback who has a microphone and an earpiece in his headset. The quarterback's job is to hear from the Lord, I mean the coach, right? On on how to execute the steps of the mission that the coach is calling. The coach in the huddle before this, they're all gathered together and the quarterback says, this is what the coach is saying. This is what I hear him saying. We're calling this play. Okay. On this play, every person on that field has a very unique purpose and function in the play. Every person is going to do something very different. Okay? Even if you did a straightforward call, these five guys up front, they have to block the guys that are trying to get to the quarterback. These guys on the outside, they have to be running down the field to try to get into a different position. The quarterback has to look and see what's going on, and he can call an audible. If he sees the defense is in a way that's going to make this play mess up, he can say, change the play. And everyone knows exactly what that means. But here's the point. Every person on the field is doing something different once that play starts but they are all united in the same exact mission with all of their heart, all of their energy, all of their passion. They do what the quarterback called, trusting the quarterback is in the same position of the mission, trusting that the quarterback is being led by the voice in his helmet, and when the play is executed, everyone puts all their heart, soul, mind, strength into doing their one job. And their job looks very different from the job of the person next to them. But if they don't do their job well, they can cause the person next to them's job to fail as well. And if one person messes up, it can create a chain reaction and the whole play gets blown up. But if the play works as designed and everyone does their job right, then the mission gets accomplished and the ball ends up in the end zone. How does that apply to unity of the faith? Pretty straightforward from my perspective. <clears throat> Unity of the faith is being united in one mission. That's the prerequisite. But, well united in that mission, you're united as one family unit, a team. And you have unique giftings and strengths and callings that will execute very uniquely in the mission. But you are united in mind and heart to the plays being called by the leader or the leaders, right? That are are receiving this commission and this calling from the Lord to accomplish this mission. If one of these players decided to disagree with the play called, Because on the mission, there's going to be many, many plays called, many different plays called. Each play will look different, but they're all working towards accomplishing this mission. If a player decides, I disagree, I don't think this is the right play, I'm going to try this play. He is going to look really silly, and he gets benched right away. The coaches on the sideline know exactly what happened, know exactly who was doing their own thing. Pull him over, What, what are you doing? Oftentimes, they grab him by the helmet, right? What are you doing? Why were you running a stud on that play? We didn't call a stud, Right? Well, I just thought a stud would work better. I don't care what you think. (laughs) Right? That's how most football coaches are. You just do the play that was called. Right? And you get back into the place. Even if you had awful leadership like that, God still requires you to submit to them. What? I don't have to put myself through that. Well, according to scripture, you do. That's abusive. That's wrong. Take it up with God. Maybe he'll ask you to move to a different place. But if that is where God puts you, he already knew the shortcomings and the weaknesses of the people that you were going to be in community with. Luckily, for our sake, I've never seen Sean grab someone's helmet. In his old age, he's gotten close. But nothing yet. Stephanie's going to keep him in check, so we're fine with that. Here's the point. Guys, this unity means this, we all absolutely, without exception, need to believe the same core truths of the gospel and the Didache, meaning the household texts. Meaning this, if you are part of a community, right, and you don't believe the husband needs to lay down his life for his wife, as Christ did for the church, then you are not in the unity of the faith with this community. Do you understand? You're just not. That is a clear teaching of Scripture. We will believe it and apply it and live according to it. And we believe it's a key part of the witness of Christ to the earth. If you don't believe in the concept of authority and submission and and kingdom government and authority and leadership and relationship and discipleship, then you're not going to be united. But here's something different, okay? What if you have a different eschatology? Are you still united? Yes, you can still be united and stuff like that, right? That's what we call secondary doctrines, teachings, things Paul says, don't even argue about it. It's not worth arguing. Don't get caught up into these vain things that are irrelevant to the the mission in the sense of primary points of unity, right? There are different things like that. But if I were part of a community and I had a different eschatology, I would want to have lots of conversations so I could fully understand why they believe different from me and then find the points of unity there. And if they believed differently than me because they didn't, because ultimately they didn't believe Christ was actually the Son of God, then I'm like, I'm out. Right? You see, the unity of the faith means unity of the teachings of Christ and his apostles and the way we are to live according to. The way. It's now up to the church to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the, the bond of peace while allowing the gifts that God has given the church to work to raise us up equipped for the work of service in the kingdom and bringing us to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God until we all reach maturity measured by the stature of Christ's fullness. If you can be united under that, you're nine-tenths of the way there. <clears throat> Do you understand? Everything else can be unique differences. I love some of the differences I have because it gives you an opportunity to have fun discussions and debates. right? But I would never divide with someone over those differences. right? Mike Giuliano and I have been debating things in the scriptures for 20 years. And we will still debate them. Same thing we've been debating for 20 years. We'll still sit down and spend two and a half hours just debating it again. Just be like, I think I found something new that's going to change this. Well, I found two new things. But when we're done, we've enjoyed ourselves. Right? And there's been unity. And there's been love without hypocrisy. And there's been family-level affection with brotherly love. Right? And in the conversations, there's never any dishonor. There's never any anger that happens. There's never any frustration that makes us start personally attacking each other. None of that's there. And that's part of the the joy that Scripture says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And so here's the call. If you don't feel like you have that unity, right? God is doing something right now in our community. This is the wrap-up. This is the close. God is doing something here. There's a reason why the messages have been put on the community's heart here, right? Why it's been a theme to start the service. Why it's been felt. Because God is doing something. We're not up here preaching thinking, what's the next cool thing I can get up here and teach? It's constantly: what do we feel God is doing and trying to do and wanting to communicate? What does the community need to be established in? What does they need? To, what do they need to be taught and strengthened and clarified and communicated? Like, encouraged, spurred on to. And unity is a big part of that. We are growing, and we are going to continue to grow according to all the things God said. And we are full steam ahead in faith that that is what God's doing. And we need unity, in the spirit in the faith, in the mission, in who's Lord, in how we submit to that Lord and what he's called us to do and where he's put us, in our lives, our dreams, our goals. If you go to lay them down and it stings, you have some, some things to talk about with the Lord. <clears throat> right? Like, but here's the point. Begin to pursue Unity pursue it like intentionally think about it where am i not in unity how can i pursue this how can i clarify it is it going to take death to the flesh to do this probably am i willing to do it god help me yes i'm just going to step out and make the call can we get together and meet can't take it back now right that type of thing that's what pursuing unity is that's why paul said we need to diligently work to preserve this unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, being united in heart and mind, being baptized into this unity as one body with one Father, the one who's calling the plays, the one who holds the hearts of kings in his hands and can turn them whichever way we want. We don't need to fear submission as long as we're doing it unto God. We can submit to any man because God's on our side. So what can man do to me? Nothing. So there's no fear in obeying God by submitting to the leaders he's put over you who have to give an account for your soul to the Father, who Paul diligently exhorts us to allow them to do it with joy for your benefit. These are scriptures I've lived my whole life under and I've seen the fruit of the Lord produce it through hard times and good times, but this is what we're calling to do. So right now, this is what I want us to pray. Before you come up, if you need prayer for an altar call, of course, come up, the prayer team will be up here. But right now, we're going to stand up and we're going to close our eyes and we're going to picture the Lord, Jesus Christ, standing in front of us. And you're going to say, Jesus, what must I do to be united? What must I do? Show me, Lord, where I'm not in unity. Show me where you've called me, where you've planted me and how I am to be united with this mission and this work, this call, this outpost, this family of families. This ecclesia, this seat of your rulership that your power is meant to go forth from. What is my role? What is my part? How am I united? What's my play? All these questions, anything you need answers to. The Bible tells us that if you come to him, he is faithful, faithful to respond. He tells us this, hey, you're looking for wisdom. You're looking for how to live this out. Come to me and I will generously give it to you. All you have to do is ask. So right now, let's just begin to ask each person, in your own words, in your own way, right now, in unity. The beautiful thing about the day of Pentecost is this. It says they were all together in one place. And they prayed. And the church later, two chapters later, they were praying in such unity that the room shook. That's what unity does. So let's just begin to pray in unity. Each voice, everyone's prayers, is something different. But they're united in the same mission, in the same request to the same Father. And in unity, he responds to everyone at once. And sometimes the room shakes when that happens. But we're not after the shaking room. We're after the shaking hearts. Allowing your heart to be shooken right now. Right shook, shaken. However you want to say it. Let it happen. God, do it. We're just praying right now, right now, just unleash it, Lord. Unleash the shakings of heaven right now that you would shake everything that can be shaken so that only the things of you remain, that only the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope, one father who happens to be the father of all of us would lead this family on the mission until the entire earth is filled with your glory so God, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would move in each heart here as they begin to call on you, as they request for you to do what only you can do. That you would produce a unity that releases a manifestation of the gospel in this region that cannot be ignored. just begin to, to speak it let a chorus of prayers rise up to the lord here guys i know that i know the preservation and the protection and the comfort of praying in our minds but like we're united here we're together this doesn't happen all the time it's a once a week thing maybe twice but this we're getting together to release this things in one accord that we would speak with our mouths and believe in our hearts that he is who he says he is and we can call to him, we can request of him, we can boldly come before the very throne of grace and ask him for the help we need in these times where we need it. Begin to release it, let it rise up. The person next to you will be praying too, who cares if they hear you, who cares what you sound like, your heart is being released to the Lord and let it become a chorus of prayer Like Revelation says, this stuff becomes incense to the Lord, these prayers that are offered up to him.